Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's only one word that matters in business in the early days, and that is the word survival. Whilst you're alive, throw yourself 100% into whatever you do and make the best of this wonderful life that we all lead. Hello and welcome to the Voom podcast from Virgin Media Business, the show where we talk all things entrepreneurial. Now, if you've been following the Voom competition this year, you'll have heard that things came to an exciting conclusion just over a week ago as six businesses went head to head in the live finale pitching to Richard Branson and his panel of judges for the chance to win a share of £1 million worth of business prizes. We've news of the winners and highlights from that event coming up. Plus, a special backstage interview with two of the judges, supermodel and entrepreneur Tyra Banks and Sarah Blakely, the genius and billionaire founder behind shapewear brand Spanx, in conversation with Sir Richard himself. Well, Banks and Spanx might have given you a little clue about the theme of today's show as I welcome my guests to the studio. We are, of course, talking about the business of fashion and I'm joined by two entrepreneurs attacking the industry in their own individual ways. My first guest is a self-described serial entrepreneur and geek meets chic Portuguese geezer, whose company, Farfetch, brings over 400 independent boutiques together in one online marketplace for the fashion-forward shopper. Last year, Farfetch was valued at over 1 billion US dollars after receiving significant investment and continues to grow worldwide in places as far-reaching as China, India and Russia. Welcome to Jose Neves. Hi, pleasure to be here. And I'm also very pleased to welcome Hal Watts, co-founder of Unmade, the London-based startup combining tech with knitting. Unmade allows buyers to customise a collection of knitwear designs via their website by manipulating patterns and colours to create unique items like T-shirts, sweaters, scarves. Every piece of clothing is then made to order using programmable knitting machines. Welcome, Hal. Hi. Gentlemen, every business needs a good USP. And Hal, Unmade's couldn't be clearer. Every product is totally unique by nature. We'll come to how that works in a moment. But Jose, going back to when you founded Farfetch in 2008, how did you know that you could stand out from the crowd in the market of online fashion retail? Well, um, I had been in the fashion industry for quite a long time, first as a designer, and then um, operating a showroom, a multi-brand showroom. Um, so I knew the industry inside out. And I really knew that there were these amazing independent retailers, these amazing boutiques scattered literally all around the world, from Tokyo to Milan, Paris, you know, Scandinavia, Miami, L.A. And these guys, they, they really are the ultimate curators of fashion. And you can find products and fashion in these boutiques that you will not be able to find anywhere else, online or offline. And 
Um, the idea was very simple. If I can get all these guys on an easy-to-shop, luxury, friendly, uh, with great customer service um, platform, you know, it will be a unique opportunity for fashion lovers around the world to shop these boutiques, even from Shanghai or Tokyo. So that's, that was the whole idea. And the USP, obviously, there, because various people will be thinking, well, hang on a minute, that's a very crowded market, online fashion. We've got people like Net-A-Porter. They were established, but they're doing well-known brands. That's the difference, is it? Uh, not not just that. Uh, the way a big retailer or e-tailer buys is fundamentally different to the way a boutique buys, even the big brands. Uh, so you will find that actually, and we've done the count, 88% of the big brands' merchandise on our website is different from those big websites and those big retailers. So you will find the unique Valentino bag that no one has bought in the world, mm-hmm. just five boutiques, one is in Japan, one is in LA, and the other happens to be in, I don't know, Milan, etc. And you will find that on Farfetch, and you won't find that anywhere else. And that is really the strength of the business, the USP. And obviously, we also stock over 1,000 high-end designers that no one else stocks. So that's you know, the second part of the USP. But even the big brands, we have really unique merchandise so you're actually curating the curators, aren't you? That's the, that's the approach. Correct, yeah. Hal, explain to us then how Unmade works. So from a customer's point of view, what will I do when I come to your website? Um, so if you go to unmade.com, you can pick a product, so as you were saying, a dress or a jumper, a T-shirt, and then you can customise that product through different interactions um, to create something really unique to yourself. Um, So what we've worked really hard to do is create interactions where the customer can be involved, but it's still clearly the design of a designer. So we're not saying everyone can become a designer. We're saying a designer should be able to scale and create unique pieces for customers. When, as a customer, I go onto the Unmade website, how does it actually work? Let's say, for example, that I want the cashmere jumper that you are wearing now. What are my options? Describe what I do. I, I click through and I've got to the homepage. Um, so you pick a product that you're interested in, whether it's a jumper or a T-shirt, and then within that product you can see lots of different ways of customising it. So what we'll do is we'll work with a designer to create that interaction. So they'll set all the parameters that the person can customise the product within. So you can drag a pattern, you can distort patterns, you can... Now, hang on, when you say drag a pattern, so right now I'm looking at a fairly simple cashmere jumper silhouette. Mm. What what does dragging it mean? Um, So when I say draggable, you can... What we'll do is we'll work with a designer to create a large graphic that goes on the product. And then the customer can move that graphic around to different positions within it. So you can change the pattern and where it is on the garment. How does it actually put it all together? Um, So we use industrial machines that are used to knit at the moment. So the way it works is you'll have multiple yarns on the top of it and it will pick the correct ones and assemble them into the product. Um, so it's very different from printing. You haven't got a pre-made product that you're adding colour to. You're mm. picking the yarns and manufacturing that garment from scratch. So supposing you are the designer who's made the shape, the silhouette, the pattern for the dress I want to customise, mm-hmm. does that designer get a percentage of 
the price that I'm paying, even though I've chosen the colours that I want, yeah. etc. Yeah, exactly. So how long did it take to develop Unmade into a working production line? Because every item is made to order and delivered within, am I right, seven to ten days? Yeah, that's right. And it's all manufactured in London currently. Fantastic. So we've actually been working on Unmade for three years now. So initially it started off as some research and consultancy work we we're doing for the UK Olympic team on the aerodynamics of clothing. And we rapidly realised that the industry had some pretty uh, kind of idiosyncratic ways of working. You, you had to order huge volumes a long time in advance to get anything at a good price. And if you were a small designer, often you couldn't even get anything manufactured or you had to pay over the odd prices compared to the bigger brands. And so we started looking for a way that you could manufacture one-off products at the same unit cost as mass production. So you've been able to do this on a large scale then? Yeah, so the way our system works is we've developed a new way of setting up industrial knitting machines. So normally in the industry, it could take up to a week to set up a machine for it to be programmed. And that means that you have to have quite a large minimum volume to offset that setup time. Our system can completely automate that. So we can set up the machine instantly from when an order comes in on the website, which means we can produce one item almost at the same unit cost as as mass production. So making one-off products, it does not massively inflate the cost of production because exactly. of what you figured out. Exactly. Who figured that out? Was it you? Was it your eureka moment? Uh, well, it was three of us, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, when we founded this. So myself, Ben and Kirsty, we got a small grant actually from the UK government to do a feasibility study from the Technology Strategy Board. And we spent three months just deciding if it was possible or not, and we decided it definitely was. And there's mass market potential for this technology, therefore? Absolutely. So 20% of the world's clothes are already manufactured on the machines that we can control. So we're not saying that factories need any new hardware. We're just offering them a faster way of setting up those machines. Yeah. As you say, technology also plays a big part in your business, obviously. And you actually started off your working life in computer programming. So what inspired you to start Farfetch? And if you can explain that background for me in technology and programming, did that actually help you to build the company that you now have? Um, short answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was a um, long question. I apologize. <laughs> so I was always really passionate about uh, programming since I was eight, uh, literally. I was kind of a geek. And I started my own software business when I was 19. I'm from the north of Portugal, very close to actually one hour drive from the largest fashion company in the world, which is Zara Inditex uh, Group. It's a huge cluster around that area of Portugal and Spain. So I started developing software for fashion businesses that got me close to fashion. Then I decided to become a shoe designer with no education in shoe design <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, something you do when you're, you know, 22. And did you, did you it do I, well? <laughs> and uh, th that's it. Uh, surprisingly, I don't know how it, 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 it did really well. So uh, suddenly I had a shoe brand in my hand. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with it. So um, I came to London in 1996 to develop that shoe brand. Mm. So that was it. So between 1996 and 2007, I was running a tech business out of Portugal, shoe business out of London, and looking for ways to merge because this was a very messy arrangement of my career development. So it's <laughs> so like, you know, what can I do that, you know, consolidates this stuff that I've been doing. And, um, and, and that's where I was, you know, looking for e-commerce 
fashion e-commerce ideas, and I just had the idea to, to start this platform for, for the luxury fashion industry. And how you also come from a technical background. You have a master's degree in both mechanical engineering and innovation design engineering. Perhaps not the most obvious route into knitwear then. So how does that fit into the background of Unmade's other founders? Because you did all meet at the Royal College of Art, didn't you? Yeah, we did. So Kirsty is the only person in our team who has a real fashion background. Um, myself and Ben are engineers, so we focus more on the technical side of things. Um, whereas Kirsty naturally knows how to make clothes and understands what, what people would want to be wearing and can also control all the machines. So she's trained on uh, as an operator on the machines, so she manages all of our production line. How many people are there on the production line then? Does it just depend on what's coming in from the website that day? Sort of. So, I mean, our ambition is actually not to focus entirely on being our own brand. So mm. although we have our own production, we consider that more as an opportunity for prototyping and technical development. Our system can operate in existing factories, which is what we're working very heavily on at the moment, is setting up with existing manufacturers so that we can grow our manufacturing base much faster. So we don't actually want to build a factory. So the three of you have got some sort of even balance in terms of the inputs and the varying degrees of interest in various areas, right? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Would you give anybody advice then about getting the right people on board and striking that balance? Have you got anything that... I think it's pretty important. I think having a multidisciplinary team is really key. And we say that to our team quite often. I mean, we have people from fashion designers to programmers to garment specialists. So I think you can do things that you can't do if you have a very narrow focus as a team. Jose, going back to the early days of Farfetch, we mentioned earlier that your business revolves around curating the curators, connecting a network of quite distinct fashion boutiques in one marketplace. When you were starting out, how easy was it to convince those boutiques to come on board? Because at that point, you didn't have a proven track record. In fact, this was a new model altogether, wasn't it? Um, indeed, it, it was quite hard. And that's always the most difficult part of creating a marketplace because if you don't have anything to sell mm. you you don't have any customers any traffic and if you don't have any traffic who's going to want to be in your you know marketplace so it's really that supply and demand equation really and i think a lot of it was through personal relationships in the fashion industry you know promising them listen don't worry this is going to be great just trust me you've um, obviously got a trustworthy face or voice then <laughs> I'm not sure, but you know, some of these uh, boutiques we were doing business with them for a few years. So in we, your physical business, in, in the physical yeah. business, and also to be honest, we set it up, and it's, it's still the same way today, where there's a very low risk. Uh, we charge a commission on sales essentially, uh, so it's not like we, we're charging people upfront to be on the platform. Mm. Although the platform is very curated, so we really vet uh, which boutiques are part of. Farfetch, and uh, right now is around 500. The 500 that are part of Farfetch, they are really the best, like him, like him, the best boutiques out there around the world. We could have 50,000, right? But we, we really uh, vet who is part of the platform. Mm. But once the conversation starts, um, if they like the idea, there's no upfront cost. So I think that frictionless model also helped. So do the people that you allow to come onto the Farfetch website have to have more than just a tried and tested brand or product, a, a tried and tested way of working? Do you have to actually like their their consciences? Do you have to like something about them as human beings? 
I think it's more the, their uh, viewpoint in fashion. So do they add to the consumer proposition? And we have boutiques that are very dark, very rock and roll, like Black Lerreur in Paris. Then we have some very cheerful, colorful, like Enric Bibskov in Denmark, which is, you know, you know, um, uh, there's no black in that store at all. Nice. And But that's the beauty of Farfetch, is mm. that you can really navigate these different curators of fashion and see where they come from, their histories and how their selection came together. Um, but also do it in a very easy, convenient way with one single shopping cart, one payment, one customer service team, which is our team, easy logistics. Uh, so no, no surprises in the end. So that's, that's really key. And what advice would you give to young entrepreneurs having to start like you did in that way? Knock on doors, make connections with suppliers, retailers. What would you suggest? Uh, you know, I, I don't like giving advice because, you know, if you look at different entrepreneurs from, I mean, if you look at Richard Branson, mm-hmm. uh, who we all admire. and if you Anybody look, listening to this podcast is going to see his face on their tablet or their phone, <laughs> however they're listening anyway, so they uh, will look at him. And I, I read a couple of his biographic books mm-hmm. and I, you know, ju- I'm just infatuated with, with his style and leadership um, and, and his personality. But then you look at people like Warren Buffett, they couldn't be all different, right? Mm. And so it really, it's difficult to give advice. I mean, the only advice I give is if there's something that you will never forgive yourself if you don't go and try it, then just do it. And I think that's the acid test um, of becoming an entrepreneur or not because it's so hard, there's so many hurdles along the way that unless you're absolutely obsessed and passionate about what you're going to do, you will find it very hard. But if you are, it is your competitive advantage because all the other guys are going to stumble upon the same blocks and they're going to throw the towel and give up and you will keep going. Mm. And it's a bit like the last man standing game. And so that's the only piece of advice. That's good advice. And Hal, unmade, young brand, and to break through into the marketplace obviously takes time and, and blood, sweat and tears, I'd imagine. I guess it's taken significant funding in terms of development and marketing to get to the stage you're at. Mm-hmm. Investors behind you? Um, yeah, so we raised uh, money uh, the middle of last year, so about a year ago now. We did an accelerator program called Techstars, which takes on about 10 startups a year. And that was really great. So it helped us kind of meet a lot of investors and build a network of people that could add value to the business. Um, And we closed a funding round in June last year. Well, for the sake of full disclosure, and it wasn't until after we booked (laughs) you both as guests that we realised this is the case. Um, Jose is actually an investor in Unmade. Is that correct? Very proud investor. I like (laughs) hearing that. So what attracted you to Unmade as an investor? Well, I think it's an absolutely mind-blowing, revolutionary uh, concept. If you look at fashion's diseases at the moment, which are you know, mass production in countries with very low levels of social responsibility, massive wastage, and also disengagement from the consumers who know everything is going to be discounted in a few weeks' time and mm-hmm. everything is mass-produced, the stores look the same everywhere, um, and I think customization solves all of that. And fashion is about creativity, individuality. So this idea of having, you know that piece was produced in a social responsible way, uniquely produced for you and with your design input. 
And the price and is the competitive. And the price is, is competitive, mm. then I think it's the future of design and it's, it's the future of fashion. So I, I, I'm a massive believer of the concept. And then I met the team and obviously they know they know what they're doing. And uh, so it was a no-brainer. Oh, how reassuring. And you've answered my question because I was about to ask you what excites you about going forward, but you've in fact said this is the future of fashion. And on the subject of raising funds, this year's Voom competition came to a really exciting close just over a week ago. Six businesses went head-to-head in the live finale, pitching for their share of £1 million worth of business support and prizes. Joining Richard Branson on the judging panel, was top model turned businesswoman Tyra Banks, Spanx founder Sarah Blakely, YouTuber Marcus Butler and Virgin Media Business's MD Peter Kelly. As we were talking fashion today, we caught up with Richard Branson, Sarah Blakely and Tyra Banks backstage for their top tips on breaking through in the industry. So, um... So fashion, I think you know a thing or two about fashion. You're definitely fashionable. Thank you. Um, so starting out in fashion, do you, any, any hints for people? Um, well, I always say the fashion industry is a very difficult one to get into. And it's actually quite low paying. Um, so you have to have a passion. Uh, unless you're, Sarah, unless you're Sarah, that's a whole other <laughs> thing. Um, but yeah, it's very glamorous. And because so many people want in, the pay is not great. However, if you do have a passion for it, I suggest intern, 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 do as much things that you can do to get in. And then once you are in and you're successful and you're doing your thing, but still living in a studio apartment with a five floor walk up, that's when it's time to really start working on your entrepreneurial idea so that you can now reap the benefits of being your own boss as opposed to reporting into some amazing editor in chief for almost minimum wage. So, Sarah, your life has been spent trying to make people's butts look better. <laughs> so, um, That's a good uh, so, <laughs> way to sum it up, I guess, Richard. So, uh, through, um, through Spanx, uh, it's sort of fashion. Um, yeah, uh, what um, can you tell us getting into fashion or getting into that kind of business? What, any hints? Sure. I mean, for me, I grew up on Clearwater Beach, knew nothing about fashion, uh, wasn't a part of my life, but I got into the industry by solving a problem. And so that is how I got my foot in the door and then creating a solution that worked under all of fashion. So I kind of think of clothing as the art or the paint and Spanx as the canvas. So it kind of was a good marriage. And I was just a frustrated consumer who really had no industry contacts in fashion and never had worked in retail. But is, think- mar- is marketing important? Yes, I would say marketing is important. I took a really authentic approach to the brand and used my own voice and humor. You know, it's a category I think fashion takes itself very seriously. And so, yeah, so I had a really kind of unusual, kitschy approach that I think got a lot of attention, but also made people realize and be able to laugh about it. I mean, I'm making butts look better. Let's, you know. So let me tell, let me tell, let me tell a story. So um, Sarah literally put her life on the line to get Spanx known. I, I had a TV program in America. Um, so she became a contestant right in the early days of starting her company. She turned up, I had a hot air balloon, uh, which she, she doesn't like heights, two hot air balloons tethered with a plank between the, the two balloons. We went up to 10,000 feet. Um, she had to walk across the plank, and then she had to climb a rope ladder onto the top of the hot air balloon, flying over the, the countryside <laughs> at 10,000 feet, have tea with me. 
And um, anyway, she, she passed <laughs> with flying colors, but nearly killed her. But yes. anyway. I, I've been putting my own butt on the line, okay, since the very beginning. Yeah. And um, Richard, I got great exposure through being on his show, but I had to conquer a lot of fears along the way to do it. I'm yeah, afraid so of heights try, and get, flying. Trying to get free publicity. <laughs> these, two, these two are good at it. Um, in fact, you know, being women, because there's less women than men, I suspect you get more than your fair share of interviews and things than you would have done if you were men. Is, is, that, is that true? You know, that is, I actually have to say, that is a competitive advantage of being a female because mm -hmm. there's not many in terms of the business world and we have to continue to fight for just a percentage of what yeah. guys, you know, get in the opportunities. But when it comes to PR, I think there's a lot of different angles mm -hmm. that we can attack, which allows us to, to get more uh, PR. Yeah. Sarah Blakely and Tyra Banks interviewed there by Richard Branson, advising to stick with it and do whatever it takes to make an impact. Jose and Hal, have you ever, either of you, had to scale a hot air balloon to woo an investor? I'll come to you first, Hal. Uh, no. No. But what is the craziest thing that you've done to market yourself? The craziest thing I've done to market myself? Um, have you just been totally sensible all along? Relatively. I mean, I think when you're fundraising, you have to take a lot of meetings. I think I probably met over 100 potential investors in the first month that I was raising. Wow. Um, so it's kind of a bit of a marathon where you're meeting all these people and then you've got to, to balance them and try and get everyone to agree to the same set of conditions to invest, which can be pretty pretty exciting. And the other interesting thing about it in the investment industry as a whole is that the more people you get, the easier it becomes to get more people, if you see what I mean. So the first person is really, really hard to convince because they've got to take a big risk to say, OK, I will invest in this when you haven't got anybody else on board and they don't even know if you're going to find the rest of the investors. So I think that's the key is, is the starting point. Jose, what's the craziest thing that you have done to woo an investor? Or have you never really needed that much investment? So we actually launched in October 2008, mm -hmm. and two weeks later, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. <laughs> so it was perfect timing, I guess. And so the investment window was completely closed for us for two years and a half. Uh, so we were running the, the business with my own money, which means no money. Right. From 2007 to 2010, and, and actually uh, late 2009, the phone started ringing and we had a few investors approaching us saying, you guys are obviously surviving, so mm. you must be doing something right. Uh, let's have a meeting. And um, it was actually the most reactive fundraising that I've done because all, all the other, we've done five fundraises, were as proactively going to, to market and trying to, to find the right investor. And we had given up by 2009 when they started calling us. So, yeah, that was interesting. Going back to the Voom competition final now, as I said, six companies made it through to the live finale, pitching in two categories, the startup category for brand new businesses and the grow category for existing companies looking to do just that. Two businesses were crowned victorious. Let's hear those winning pitches. The first pitch in our startup category an inspired business taking landfill to roadfill. Toby McCartney with his business, Macreba. Hello judges, I'm Toby and thank you for this opportunity. At Macreba, we make this. 
I know what you're thinking, it's a bit of a road, but it's a very, very special bit of a road. Our road, or our invention, helps solve three world problems. It finds a use for the millions of tons of waste plastics. It reduces the billions spent on road maintenance, pothole repair, and new road creation. And it makes our roads pothole-free, stronger and longer-lasting. And our roads are cheaper, £3,500 per mile cheaper. And we've taken it one step further. What we uh, have worked out is how to take out the bitumen from these roads and replace it with waste plastics. And at the end of the life cycle of our road, we're able to take out those waste plastics and recycle them and use them over and over again. Our recycling doesn't ever stop. You know, who would have thought old rubbish can make our roads 60% stronger? If we were to resurface the M25, the orbital motorway around London, we could save 8,000 tonnes of bitumen toxic bitumen. We would replace it with 8,000 tonnes of waste plastics. And we would save Londoners here today 4.4 million pounds. Our, our business is both economically and environmentally scalable. So join us in our revolution to change the way our roads work and to help end the plastic epidemic. Thank plastic you. Plastic epidemic. <laughs> well done. Well done. Second inspirational grow finalist, Arthur Kay with his business BioBean, which finds more sustainable living in the bottom of a coffee cup. Who has had a cup of coffee today? Quite a lot of you. Well, you're not alone because in the UK we drink about 70 million cups of coffee every single day. And all of that consumption produces a huge amount of waste. Over 500,000 tonnes of waste coffee grounds are produced each year. BioBean is a green energy company. We're the first in the world to have industrialised the process of turning waste coffee grounds into advanced biofuels. We work with waste management companies to collect tens of thousands of tonnes of waste coffee grounds from sites across the UK, ranging from your local independent coffee shop all the way up to some of the biggest coffee chains and instant coffee factories as well. We've built the world's first coffee waste recycling factory. It's massive and has the capacity to process over 50,000 tonnes of waste coffee grounds each year. The fact I like is that's about 1 in 10 cups of coffee that are consumed in the UK, or around 7 million cups a day. So what do we do with all this? So essentially, what, when we get to these coffee grounds, we, some of our mad scientists have come up with a way to take the oil out, and we turn this oil into biodiesel and biojet fuel for things like powering planes, trains, and automobiles. And the residual biomass, essentially solid waste coffee grounds that's left over, um, compressed into our newest product, which is called Coffee Logs. And we've just actually launched that through the Voom crowdfunding platform earlier this year. From an environmental perspective, a single tonne of waste coffee grounds recycled using our process saves nearly seven tonnes in CO2 emissions. To put that in perspective, that's the equivalent of driving a black taxi from here in London all the way to Beijing and back twice. And that's from a single tonne. And our factory can do over 50,000 tonnes every single year. Biobean has grown rapidly from a very simple premise. There's no such thing as waste, simply resources in the wrong place. And I urge the judges uh, to join me and the rest of the Biobean team to help get the world powered by coffee. <laughs>
A huge congratulations to MacReba, winners of the startup category for their ingenious business, turning waste plastics into greener, safer road surfaces, and to BioBean, winners of the Grow category, powering the world with coffee. Also, congratulations to runners-up Efoldi, Vibe Tickets, Food Cloud and Siberi Tree Water. All incredible businesses disrupting in their own ways. You can find out more about all those companies by heading to vmbvoom.com slash winners. You're listening to the Voom podcast and I'm joined by Jose Neves of Farfetch and Hal Watts of Unmade. They are both in the studio with me and we're talking about the world of fashion. Now, as we just heard in the competition there, more and more businesses are also trying to combine an element of positive impact in the way that they do their work. BioBean and McReba were both looking at using waste materials. They're inspirational companies. Hal, in a way, the process behind Unmade is also addressing a problem because you're avoiding waste in the production line by making things to order. Was that a conscious factor when you started up the business? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The fashion industry produces more carbon emissions than the airline industry. So the amount of waste is actually really quite a big deal. Um, it's estimated up to 30% of clothes are never sold because just of overproduction and then, you know, you have to predict a long time in advance what people are going to want and then manufacture it and hope for the best. And we're trying to move to a much more responsive model where you can wait until someone makes a purchase and then manufacture it, which would avoid a lot of the waste in the industry. But for us, the social angle, the impact we're trying to have is really fundamental to the company. Those are staggering statistics Mm. delivered very simply by you. But my goodness, Um, is it something, Jose, in terms of ethics and environmental impact that are considerations for you with the brands that you sign up? You know, we we have um, a sense of corporate social responsibility. I always wanted to operate in the higher end of the fashion industry where the, everything on our website are pretty much, you know, over 95% has been produced either in Italy or Portugal or Spain, mm-hmm. um, countries where um, there's no child labor and where there's a sense of, you know, social security. Um, the wastage is a problem in any mass production. One of the reasons why I'm an investor in, in house business, because obviously, uh, you know, if you produce without knowing what your demand is going to be, mm. that's always going to be an element of wastage. But it is the fast fashion industry that produces most of it because people will buy 10 trousers because it's just so cheap, mm. you know, whereas the higher end designer industry, you know, those pieces are produced with great materials, great craftsmanship. Obviously, the price point is higher. Uh, they'll last much longer and consumers will buy them in a much more considerate way just because if for anything else because they're more expensive. Yeah. So um, I think what we do is we help small businesses. Um, some of our boutiques, they're third-generation businesses. They've been around for 100, 110, 150 years. Other boutiques, they're just you know young, um, out-of-university designers that actually found out they want to be curators of fashion, not just creators of fashion, and mm. start their own boutiques. And same thing with designers. Many of our designers, they use our platform to um, effectively reach customers all around the world. And, and I think keeping that ecosystem of old and new, traditional and um, innovative businesses 
um, it's, it's really important for the fashion industry. Based on your experience, Hal, what would your top tips be in terms of pitching to investors and any memorable experiences that you have, good or bad? Please share with us, won't you? This is going to inspire or at least give somebody some warning signs who's yeah. listening right now. I think the worst experience I had, which actually went well because they they offered to invest, is I went to a meeting with a VC and I thought it was an informal coffee. And I got there and they'd prepared a board meeting and they were all sat ready for me to pitch the business to them. And I hadn't even brought a presentation. Um, that was probably the worst experience in terms of... Uh, of getting it wrong. Did you have sweat on your upper lip? And I definitely probably didn't look my most relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> I think my advice would be try and be as confident as possible when pitching to investors, but also realise that they're seeing hundreds of pitches and for them to write a cheque is a big deal, but also it's their job and they do it all the time. Mm. And for you, it's a stressful or, or strange situation to be in to go and ask someone for a lot of money, but for them it's very normal mm. and it's day-to-day -day business. Jose, have you got any tips or advice for people pitching? So my, my first investment committee, so basically that's the moment where you go to the board meeting and there are like 10 people in the room and all of that. I also didn't know it was um, such a formal meeting and they told me, be here at 12 and I arrived at 12. Mm. But 12 was the moment I should have had set up my presentation oh. right there so that they come in, no time to lose. And I arrived very casually after my, you know, 10K run in the morning and all <laughs> that. I say, where were you? So, I'm here. It's 12. Yeah, 12 is the moment you start pitching. Your computer's not even set up. This shit. <laughs> so I had to wait for another slot oh. and they still invested. So that, that was... So uh, lucky. So lucky. And I mean, uh, we had so many fun moments and... Just in the last round, we met a lot of U.S. investors. For the first time, we had a boutique investment banker doing the work with us. And they taught me one thing, uh, which we recognized the pattern very quickly. If they say in the end of the meeting, congratulations, you've built a tremendous business. That's the kiss of death. They're not going to invest. Oh. And, and then we were, it was quite fun because we were at the end of each meeting, when we heard, congratulations, you've built a fantastic business, okay. <laughs> it's almost like, you know what? <laughs> you know, go to hell, basically. So yeah. I, I've just wasted one hour and a half of my time. Thank you very much. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, it, it's an industry with its own, uh, you know, rules and, and, and they, it's their profession, it's their job. So it's, mm. it's uh, actually you have to see the fun side of it. Otherwise, um, yeah. Aren't you now a u unicorn company? Aren't you now a unicorn company? Is that I mean, what that, they're that, calling that, you? That's what they call, you know, I suppose companies uh, over one billion valuation when they're, they're still yeah. private, which then it's it's the case. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. That's huge. Hal, what's next for Unmade? Apart from me coming onto your website later today <laughs> and ordering a cashmere jumper for my boyfriend. Um, so at the moment, we're, we're, we launched Unmade to demonstrate what was possible to the industry because... As Josie was saying, the fashion industry has got quite a lot of quirks of how it operates. And also, it's quite a conservative industry, believe it or not. I mean, it's very creative, but it's also quite conservative in how it approaches things. And we felt there was a need to demonstrate what our vision was. And also, when we started the business, it was three of us in a basement. So if you go to a, a large brand and say, we want to change your whole supply chain, 
then you have to fight really hard to establish credibility there. So we built our own business end-to-end that would go all the way from selling to a customer to manufacturing mm-hmm. and shipping. And that really showed people what, what was possible. So our focus over the next year is to really work with much larger brands and to provide them with the technology that we have. Fantastic. And just say you continue to expand. Uh, You've just opened, well, you've already opened new offices in Shanghai and Hong Kong. Is the global approach your focus now? Um, Definitely international is a big, big part of of our growth plans. Uh, To give you an idea, 26% of sales are in Asia right now. And the US is our largest market, it's around 35%. And then we have pockets of demand in the Middle East, Russia, South America, etc. So actually, UK is you know relatively small market for us. So definitely, going global is a big part of the strategy of the business and comes handy in times like these. And I won't say any, <laughs> anything else. <laughs> That's nearly it for this episode, but a couple of quick questions to you both to close the show. What's the most fulfilling part of your job, Jose? Um, I, I think definitely working with super smart, super talented people, much more clever, much more creative than, than I am, and learning with them every day. Uh, it's, it's really a privilege. Uh, we've really built a, a fantastic team. And, you know, it's not about ideas. You know, anyone can have ideas. Um, it's about executing um, those ideas beautifully and efficiently. And, and that is going to be done by your team, not by yourself. And putting this team together and then working with these guys every single day is, is uh, very inspiring. So that, that's what keeps me going. That's what's fulfilling for you. Hal, what's the most fulfilling part of your job? The same, to be honest. Really? It's, yeah, team? It's, yeah, it's when you manage to give someone an opportunity to do something really good mm. and give them the support to do that. I think it's, that's the most satisfying part, definitely. Okay, for entrepreneurs looking to break into this industry, where do you think the most exciting opportunities and trends in the fashion and fashion retail worlds are? I think it's definitely, I mean... I think the supply chain is going to evolve a lot. Mm. I think that if you look at most of the innovation that's occurred over the last five years, it's been in retail. It's been in buying and online and and kind of really exciting and new ways of doing that. And I think the next kind of phase is going to be how that can connect into a much more flexible supply chain, which is what's happened in in a lot of other industries already. Yeah. Jose, what about you? Um, The most exciting opportunities. I think the merging of the physical experience, which is not going to disappear. Just to give you an idea, over 90% of fashion is still sold in physical stores. Only 10% is sold online. Mm. So those physical stores, are going. The, the role is going to change, but they're still going to be there. And how does that connect to digital platforms such as Firefetch? I think that is the big revolution on you know how these uh, physical spaces, which are magical once they get it right, mm. you know the interior decoration, the smell of the place, the human interaction, the, the merchandising, visceral the visceral stuff. You cannot replicate that online, but you do need to make that efficient, and you do need to have almost augment that reality with digital platforms. Mm. Um, and then, obviously, that is on the retail side of things, and that that will extend to the supply chain, and I think that's what Unmade is doing. Um, so how do we make the whole industry much more efficient? And I think that's the big revolution. Would you say that customization and personalization is the next big thing? 
I think it is. I think that a lot of the industry is starting to change in that way and see it as a big opportunity. I think the real change there, because you, you could make a more efficient supply chain without customization and personalization, but I think th- the real opportunity is that it involves the customer in a completely different way. It becomes much more meaningful to own a product that you've been involved in the design of it than just owning a product that everybody else owns. And mm-hmm. I think that means that people treat their products differently and also have a much richer experience of them. Do you agree, Jose? Absolutely, and I would be willing to put my money on it. Well, you have I done, have haven't to, you? I, have, I actually have done that. I'm putting my money where my mouth is. Well, may you both <laughs> go from strength to strength, and thank you so much for being part of the Boom podcast today. Thanks. Thank you both. Thank you. Remember, to find out more about Virgin Media Business's Voom campaign, head to vmbvoom.com or on Twitter using the hashtag Voom at VMBusiness. And you can also check out all the pictures from the Voom finale on YouTube. But for now, from me, Nikki Beatty, and the Voom podcast team, goodbye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.